Uh, well, thank you everyone for being here with us at Scarlet City Church this morning. Uh, I'm particularly thankful that you're here because I get to share with you some things that are really important to me in my own life, in my own uh, faith journey. I wanted to let you know a couple things about myself and share about how I really became a, a, following, a, a follower of Christ. Uh, I grew up in a Christian home, and I'm really thankful for my parents who were very uh, kind to me, and they were good to me. Uh, but despite what they did, uh, my entire world was based around looking for people's approval. Uh, I so desperately wanted people to like me and approve of me, uh, and so that's why I'm hilarious, because uh, I had lots of practice. That was a joke, because I'm not very funny. Uh, and I would use humor in sports, or I would use silence uh, I was a big observer, so I tried not to make too big of a, a pool. Just people would be like, oh, I didn't know Mike has been here for two years. Uh, and that was kind of my goal, was just to uh, quietly and subtly start to belong and start to fit in. But it wasn't just approval of people that ruled my life. Uh, There's also, a, I was a very emotional person. Uh, excuse me, I am a very emotional person. Uh, you could tell uh, by, I was a really sore loser, uh, and I have some family here, some cousins and aunts and uncles who can attest to that, of how big of a sore loser I was. I remember playing Risk once, and, uh, and everybody teamed up on me and kicked me out, and I remember crying, and I don't know who, but somebody had to pull me out of the room because I was crying so hard. Uh, but it wasn't just uh, overcome with being a sore loser. Oh, by the way, I'm still a sore loser, and I'm certain my wife lets me win games just so I don't throw a fit. Um, but it wasn't just in, in those small things. It was also in uh, desire, overwhelming desire for something, or anxiety, or fear. Uh, just wherever my emotions were pointing, I, I would go to. And so even though I was living in a, in a Christian home and I had very uh, kind, godly parents, uh, approval and emotions is what ruled over my life. And then in 2006, while I was on a mission trip, I, I don't know exactly when this happened in the three months that I was in uh, at this location, but there was some time where I felt the Holy Spirit inviting me to allow Jesus to be Lord of my life. We're saying approval is Lord of your life. Approval is what is dictating what you're doing and what you're thinking. And emotions is ruling over life. It's pointing where you want to go and where you don't want to go, but inviting Jesus to be Lord of my life. And that's where I really share about how my faith journey began. And from there, it was a really hard time, especially the next couple of years, because I was doing a lot of the Christian-y things, uh, I was, I mean, I was on a church mission trip, so uh, that was already pretty Christian-y. Uh, but uh, just the, the journey between uh, living life and doing things similarly, but allowing Jesus to be Lord of my life, to rule over me, to be my hope and my joy. But since letting Jesus be Lord of my life, I can say uh, with honesty and celebration that he has brought me so much peace so much calmness, so much belonging that I don't uh, often just desperately thrive for approval. This brought me a lot of emotional health. Uh, right when I became a Christian, I just turned my back on emotions and was like, these things are evil and bad, and I'm never ever going to feel things again like, uh, like that's going to fix the problem or that I could actually make that happen, which could not happen. But the journey was so hard because uh, there was a constant battle in my life for lordship. 
There is a constant battle between emotions, between approval, and between Jesus of, of what Lord will I put my hope in? Who will I depend on? And who will I look to? And that brings us uh, to the passage that we're going to read this morning. Uh, so if you'd like to, you can open up uh, your Bibles, if you have a Bible or a phone, or uh, there's a Bible in front of you, um, and we welcome that. But I also want to invite you to do something which you don't have to do, but I want to invite you just to listen. So often, uh, when the Word of God is being read, we just go straight into reading and thinking about the different translations, but I want to invite you just to listen and engage in the story. You can even close your eyes if you feel comfortable, uh, imagine the characters, and imagine what's happening. So I'm going to read uh, Exodus chapter 5, verses 1 through 9, and then verse, uh, chapter 6, 1 through 9. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God lest we fall upon us, lest he fall upon us with pestilence and with the sword. But the king of Egypt, he said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters, taskmasters of the people and their foremen. You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, Let us go and offer sacrifices to God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. Now I'm skipping ahead to uh, chapter 6. The Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of this land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan and the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from, the, uh, from, out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I'll bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. This is the word of God for the people of God. So in this story, we see a fight between two lords. 
it's not simply Moses fighting with Pharaoh. It's not simply the people of Israel fighting with Pharaoh. It is Yahweh and Pharaoh. They are fighting over the people of Israel. Pharaoh is saying, I want this for these people. And Yahweh is saying, I want this for these people. The Israelites, they too, they have a choice of where to put their hope, where to put their expectancy, where to put their dependence in Pharaoh or in Yahweh. And every moment of every day for us, we have the same choice. We can put our hope, our expectancy, or our dependence. We can choose to put that in God or in a different Lord. And what we see in this passage is, is what God offers people is unique, is unique. So we're going to firstly look at the tension between work and rest, and then we're going to look at a tension between ridicule and validation of our emotions and our feelings. So firstly, we're going to look at work versus rest and, and how these two play out and how, what Pharaoh offers and what God offers. So Pharaoh, if you can uh, sense the story, he was pretty upset. He was irritated uh, that the Israelites would ask for a, a journey. Now, it says three days, but that didn't necessarily mean it would just be gone three days. Uh, it meant that the journey would take three days and then they would be there. But Pharaoh was so angry that he said, you know what, I'm going to make work even harder for you. I'm going to make everything worse. And I don't understand how to make straw. Or I don't know how to make straw, that's true. I don't know how to make bricks. But straw was a very important component. Straw is what held everything together. And so making bricks without straw was extremely tiresome. And you needed straw. So it wasn't just like, oh yeah, we'll just you know, use something else, maybe flour or some grating. Uh, once again, I know nothing about bricks. So. But Pharaoh was so angry with them that he made their work harder. They made their work more laborious. And even later, uh, the Israelites, well, in, in the middle that I skipped there, the Israelites were like, Moses, stop talking to him. Please just stop. Like he's making everything worse. Please stop it. So we see that Pharaoh demands more work. Pharaoh demands more work. And when I think about what that looks like in my life, when I think about the approval that I wanted from people, when I think about the uh, emotions that were driving me, I think about the work that just continues and continues and continues in my life. There's no end to the amount of work when I let Pharaoh be Lord of my life, when I put my hope in Pharaoh. The work continues to achieve a sense of identity the work continues to gain self-worth. The work continues to belong to a certain people group or a certain system. The work continues to gain, uh, the work continues to gain our security if our security is in a different Lord. We think about, uh, I think about parenting a lot. I've been a parent for just a few years now, uh, and there is all types of emotions uh, lined up in there. Uh, but measuring up to other parents is, is a real hardship. Looking at what other parents are doing and, and, and seeing uh, what they're doing is good, but maybe I'm doing something different. Maybe if you're a parent, you've heard someone say, how could you love your child and do X, Y, and Z? How could you really care about them and allow A, B, C, and D to happen? You know, there's this pressure that we receive from others, but also a pressure that we, allow, uh, that we tell ourselves. We think about work and, and making money. There's never an amount of money that is enough money for us. Uh, I don't want to speak for you. For me, 
uh, and I assume that you are like me. Now, there's never enough money to have because as soon as we have more money, what do we do with it? We spend it. As soon as we make more, we start organizing our lives to use all of that money. The work continues because ultimately we will not be satisfied in these things. Getting approvals from the other parents, get making more money. In fact, uh, a lot of the conversations that I have with people as a pastor are, are people in two life stages. One is transitioning from uh, being in school to being in the workforce. And the other is from being married without kids to married with kids. The reason uh, that so many of these conversations happen is because there's such a, a great expectation. There's a great expectation to be out of school. Uh, I mean, it's awesome being out of school. I don't want to belittle it. It's amazing. Uh, but it's hard in a different way. Uh, and, it, and it is the hope that we put in it of the fulfillment of the joy in life that we'll finally have that when we're no longer in school, it, it doesn't, doesn't connect. And then when people, uh, and myself included, when we anticipate the birth of a child, usually the first child, we anticipate it so much. You know, what do you say when you're going to have a, a kid? You say, we're going to start a family. It means we're not a family right now. And our family starts when this baby is born. So it starts with crying and pooping on repeat. That is what makes a family. So we put all this hope and expectation on this child. And then when the child comes, it's exhausting and it's hard. And we get hurt because we are expecting it so much. And I want to ask a question that I want you to seriously consider. Do you feel burdened with busyness? Do you feel burdened with busyness? Because if you do, this is probably a sign that you're hoping in something other than the Lord. If you feel burdened with busyness, if life is always going on to the next thing over and over and over again and you don't know where it ends, it is probably because we're searching for something that we're not getting in the Lord. So Pharaoh, he demands work. But Yahweh, Yahweh, he offers rest. He says in verse 6 of of chapter 6, he says, I will deliver you from under the burden. I will deliver you from under the burden. And then he says in verse 8, he says, I will bring you into the land and I will give it to you. He will give you the land. Now, I own a little land. Uh, I think it's like half an acre or something like that. Don't even quote me. I don't know anything about that. I I own something. Uh, And... Uh, And living in a house that I own had so much more joy than in a a place that I rented. And the reason that was is because I was invested in the property. I was invested in in, in investing in it. Uh, And when uh, I was renting, I felt like any investment I made wasn't really for me. It was just to keep me going on. It wasn't really for me. So, Jesus, uh, so God, he's saying, not just you can move into this land and I, uh, I'll lease it to you. He doesn't even say, I- I'll bring someone better than Pharaoh to rule over you. He says, I will give you the land. He promises them rest that they no longer will have to work. But we know when you own something, it doesn't mean that you're not working doesn't mean that we can just sit around. So what does rest actually look like? What is the rest that God is offering them? It's the rest that they no longer have to work to gain. They're able to rest from striving to gain life. 
Because in this story, they had to work so that they wouldn't be beaten to death. This was their purpose in life, was making bricks, were serving an oppressive Lord. So Yahweh, God, he offers them to come into a land, to own the land where they can rest. So what does that look like for us? I think about two specific things for me. Knowing that I no longer have to work to gain, I think I am free from other people's judgments. I am totally free from the judgments of others. With the parents who think, I cannot believe that Mike threw his daughter that high in the air. (laughs) Uh, These are real things that have happened. Uh, I cannot believe that you would, you know, put your kids in a car for eight hours to travel. Now, I cannot believe that you wouldn't put your kids in a car for 10 hours. You know, how dare you? Uh, That I am free from these judgments, but it's also so much personal, more personal than just my parenting. It's who I am. Mike, you need to be more like this. You need to be more expressive. You need to be uh, less reserved. You need to be more of a talker and less of a thinker, or more of a thinker and less of a talker. We all have these different personalities, and we're free from the judgments of ourselves, but also we're free from the judgment of ourselves. I know for me, I am the loudest voice in my own head, and often I can be the cruelest person to myself. And and thinking about I am free from work, I am free from having to gain my own approval of who I am, knowing that God made me exactly the way that he wanted That God had a plan when he knit me together in my mother's room. We are free from work and we are free to rest. Secondly, we see this tension between ridicule and validation. And and this is a ridicule and validation of our feelings and our emotions. So when Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and they say, hey, this is what we need. Pharaoh says, excuse me? Who is this Lord? that he should tell me what to do. And I know we want to think the best of Pharaoh, but he was not going like, oh, the Lord, God Almighty, I've never heard of him before. Like, who, who is this? Maybe I'll consider him. It was a rhetorical question. Who is this Lord and I don't care, is what Pharaoh was saying. So he doesn't, he doesn't care what they're saying, and then he goes on to say, you know what? You're a liar. You're a liar and you're idle. We see this in verse 8 and verse 17 in, 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 uh, in chapter 5. In fact, in verse 17, he says it twice. He says, you are idle. You are idle. Just like that. Saying it two times is, is like an exclamation point. In verse 9 is when he calls them liars. So they bring their needs to Pharaoh and they say, hey, this is who we are. This is what we do. And Pharaoh says, nah, no straw. You're lazy and you're a liar. Uh, I don't know about you guys, I feel this a lot. When I bring my needs, when I admit my needs, when I admit who I am, I hear people and I hear myself saying, no, you're lazy, you're a liar. Or I think things like, you know, this is hard, but I know people who have it way worse than me, so I shouldn't feel bad about this. Or maybe you think, Oh, you know, this is just my perspective, and perspective is wrong, uh, and its perspective is different from facts. So we negate our feelings, and we ridicule ourselves and allow others to ridicule us. But what does God offer them? 
Pharaoh, he ridicules our needs, where God, he validates our feelings. God validates our feelings. In verse 5 of chapter 6, when God is speaking to Moses, he said, I have heard the groans of Israel. I have heard the groans of Israel. Even though they are working and they feel alone, I have heard them and I know them. When I think about uh, groans, once again, I think about my children. Uh, And it was just on Thursday uh, that we were making dinner, and my son said, hey, I'm hungry. Is dinner ready? And we said, it it will be ready in about 15 minutes. And you know what he said? He said, thank you, Father. You are a blessing to me, and I am forever grateful. (laughs) No, he said, I'm hungry right now. And so in my heart, I said, yeah, that's fine. You, you can go ahead and starve then. <laughs> this is how I feel when a child is questioning me, when I'm doing everything I can to make this nice, amazing stew. <laughs> With two hands, like a witch. <laughs> we make big vats, so we only have to cook once a month. But when the Israelites cry to God and they groan, he didn't say, excuse me? One chapter ago, I made some promises to you. So buck up because I'm a God of my word. No, God doesn't act the way I act. He says, I've heard the groans and I've I've heard the cries. And this is their perspective. Us, we can read the whole story in, in a few moments. We can read the whole story of these people's slavery and oppression in a few moments and know that it's coming. But their perspective is they are in deep pain, real pain, oppression, murder, terrible things. And our perspective is so important because our perspective is how we perceive the world and it impacts how we view other things. Our perspective is so important that even if it's not really the way it happened, It's the way that we view ourselves and the way we view the world. So God, he hears us and he listens to us, even if it's not exactly true what's happening, especially if it is true that it's happening. So we're able to bring our feelings, our perspectives, and our thoughts to God fully. So we see that in one regard, there's a Lord offering work where God offers rest, In one regard, there is a Lord offering ridicule and diminishing us, where on the other side, a Lord is offering validation. So I do want to talk briefly, a little more practically, about what does it mean, what does it look like to cultivate a community of hope? What does it look like uh, to cultivate a community of hope of people who are hoping in the Lordship of God? I want to read this quote from Brene Brown, uh, and she said this. She said, hope is a collective binding experience, but not of dreams, but from a place of struggle through hard work to achievement. I love that. Hope is a collective binding experience from a place of struggle. So when we think about hope, it's by its nature a community event. I, I was trying not to do this, but I have to bring it up. Uh, the Columbus Crew soccer team is, yes, we will pr- petition this on our knees later. Uh, the owner wants to move the team to Texas because uh, I won't say anything about him. 
But there is a new community that is based around uh, this sport and around this team of people that are struggling together, that have an aim, that are working hard and moving towards something. And that's what hope is. Hope is being a community together and growing. So I want to talk about four practical ways for us to grow in, in hope, to cultivate this community of hope. Well, firstly, we need to recount stories. We need to recall the stories of God saving his people, the stories of people depending on God despite their circumstances. This is why these stories in Exodus are so good and stories throughout the Bible are so real and alive to us because we can see the story of God and his people. But maybe you have an experience where uh, the Bible was used negatively and Digging into the Bible, is, is, it's been abused in your life. But there are stories for 2,000 years of the church depending on God. And I, I put two resources in your bulletin uh, that I think are really valuable. The first one is a sermon by Martin Luther King Jr. about hope. When I think about oppression and slavery, I think about the African-American community in America Martin Luther King was on the forefront of fighting for these people, fighting not just for these people, not just for African Americans, but for everyone in equality. And he had this hope, this trust in the Lord. And then, secondly, there's an autobiography by Corey Tenboom, and she was a woman in Holland. Uh, who was not Jewish, but it was during World War II, and she used her little resources in her home to bring uh, people who were being, uh, being targeted by Nazis, mostly Jews, to hide them and protect them. And these were both people, Martin Luther King Jr. and Corey Ten Boom, who were dependent on God, dependent on his sovereignty, on his lordship, and ultimately hoped in him. We need to recount stories of people depending on God. Secondly, uh, hope is learned. Hope is a muscle. Uh, hope is something that can grow and shrink. Uh, and so we need to be a place where uh, hope is, is where we come ready to learn about hope, where we come in ready to put our expectation and our, our hopes on the Lord. Another quote from Brene Brown. I know, I'm, I'm sorry, she's amazing. Uh, she says this, hope is learned, we learn hopeful, goal-directed thinking in the context of other people. Children most often learn hope from their parents. To learn hopefulness, children need relationships that are characterized by boundaries, consistency, and support. I think it's so empowering to know that I have the ability to teach my children how to hope. It's not a crapshoot, which is awesome. I always wanted to say that. Uh, it's a conscious choice. Hope is learned. So we see that hope is a muscle that we need to, uh, we need to grow in. Uh, I think uh, this past semester, I was a bowling coach uh, for North Community. Nope, not North Community. Uh, for what, what school was I at? Westerville North. Thank you. I cared a lot about them. And there is these kids that have been bowling for a while, and their form was terrible. Their form was completely terrible. Uh, but I was able to work with them over the semester to show them how to bowl correctly, because uh, I know how to bowl correctly. Uh, that it's something that I couldn't just say, okay, that's wrong, you know, fix it. I had to show them, and I had to teach them, and they had to come ready to learn what it looks like to bowl correctly. 
And so if you're in a place where you feel like you're losing hope, if you're in a place where you feel lonely, I want to urge you to remain in community. I want to urge you to remain with people and being honest about the hopelessness and the pain that you feel. Now, on the flip side of hope is learned, we also have to know that we teach hope, that hope is taught. Uh, And Martin Luther King Jr. said this. He said, the church is something of the custodian of hopefulness. And when everybody else loses hope, when other institutions lose hope, the church is that one institution that must keep hope alive. What does that look like to keep hope alive? And I think that hope is most taught through empathy. Hope is most taught through empathy. Empathy. And I think that the church has this reputation when people bring pain to us. We say, you know, I'm trying to think of some Christian jargon that has been hard of, oh, God has a plan or God designed this for you. Uh, And those are kind of right. This isn't really, I didn't want to get into this. Uh, (laughs) Hope is most taught through crying with somebody. Hope is most taught by putting your arm around their shoulder and saying, this isn't good. This isn't right. When we think about how God engaged with the Israelites, he said, I heard their groans. Hope is taught by us, the church, by hearing the groans, by being with people. And when we say this isn't right, when we cry with them, when we put our arms around them, we are saying, your feelings are valid. I understand that this hurts. We are saying there is something better. We're saying that with our actions, with our presence. So to cultivate a community of hope, we have to recount stories, we learn hope, we teach hope, and then lastly, we act courageously. We act courageously. See, those who have much hope are the people who gave the most in their present situation. When we think about Martin Luther King Jr., he gave his life for this mission. He gave his life to to communicate the need to change the system. He's still influencing people today. Corey Ten Boom also was taken and put into a camp She lost her father. She lost her sister. These people who have great hope in something greater than today are able to invest the most right now. We think about hope as a muscle. Acting courageously is the flexing our muscle. No, it's exercising our muscle. We are acting courageously, living confidently in the hope of the Lord. And I want to close with this remembering that Christ first acted courageously. Christ acted courageously in coming to us and taking our sin on the cross. We receive rest through Christ. In Christ, he empathizes with us because he was fully human and he knows everything that we've been through. Christ is our hope and he is the Lord of our life. And in this passage, When God is talking to the Israelites, he said, I will extend my hand to you and I will pour out my judgment. We remember that when Christ came, God extended his hand and poured out his full judgment on Christ on the cross. And extending a hand isn't just to to intimidate somebody. 
It's picking somebody up. God extended his hand to us, offering rest, offering validation for our needs. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are for us. We thank you that you are with us. Lord, I pray that you would reveal to us the Lord's in our lives that we are letting rule. I pray that you would glue us to a community where we can recount your stories of grace, where we can remember your faithful goodness to your people so that we can continue to hope in you. I pray that this rest that we have, that this validation of our humanity, of who we are, would not just be known in our heads, but would be truly experienced. We depend on you, Lord. We pray that you would continually become Lord of our lives in a deeper and deeper way. And we pray all this in the name of your Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.